How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein. I am delighted to be joined in conversation by Louise Muir, the president and CEO of New York City's oldest museum, the New York Historical Society. Louise, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Very glad to be with you. When was the New York Historical Society actually first started? We were founded in 1804 as New York's first museum. And where was it located when it was started? Well, most of New York City was at the tip of Manhattan, and that's where we were in New York's first city hall, which no longer exists, but we were in that same building as George Washington was inaugurated as the nation's first president. What was the purpose of the society? Well, we were founded by 11 men who had lived through the American Revolution, and all of them were very conscious of their own historical moment, which is very, very rare. They knew that if There was no record of the times that they had lived through. History would, as I said, be nothing but dust and speculation. So they decided to to establish an institution that would collect and preserve and disseminate for the sake of future generations. And uh, that is what they've done. How is the society governed today? And how many individuals are on the governing board? We, we have a board of trustees. We are a completely private institution, and uh, we're governed by about 60 trustees. About a dozen of them are scholar trustees. We have um, a small group of uh, administrators. I'm executive, and we've got a uh, few other people in the um, executive wing, so to speak. Who was the chair most recently of the society, and who is the new chair? The past nine years, Pam Schaffler has been the chair of the New York Historical Society. She is someone who majored in history and art history in college and then went on to do graduate work in history. And she she is originally from New Jersey. And when I met her, she was actually transcribing the papers of the New Jersey Livingston family. Uh, She will conclude her term as chair on February 28th. And Agnes Xu Tang, who's trained also as an art historian, but as an archaeologist as well, will be succeeding her as chair. Uh, It will be the first time, as far as I know, and I'm pretty sure I'm correct, the first time that an Asian American woman has chaired uh, an institution organized around history. How many different institutes or centers are there in this society? We have three. We have our Reese Family Graduate Institute for Constitutional History, which runs seminars during the course of the year. They're designed to help faculty at liberal arts colleges master the constitutional history that they 
probably didn't find as graduate students um, because most PhD granting institutions these days do not offer any coursework whatsoever in constitutional history. I mean, law, law schools, you certainly learn constitutional law, but history departments just aren't doing that. So that was an institute that was designed to fill in the blanks so that faculty in liberal arts colleges could actually teach constitutional history. Then we have a center for women's history, which we started about eight years ago. And that also uh, runs seminars and other kinds of events and has an advisory board made up of scholars in the field. And then most recently, we established our Diamondstein Spielvogel Institute for New York City History, Politics, and Community Activism. And uh, that does a range of things from host fellowships to conferences to other, other kinds of events organized around the, those topics. What have been the most popular of your exhibitions in recent years? Um, among our most popular exhibitions have been uh, those on wars like the Vietnam War and World War II, um, two very popular topics and people perennially interested in World War II. That was a um, very, very big success. Longer while back, we did an exhibition on slavery in New York, and um, that was a uh, really exceedingly well-attended exhibition. People discovered, for the most part, for the first time, that the North had enslaved people. Um, in New York's case, as many as, uh, in fact, more than any other city, um, certainly during the colonial period, than, uh, except for Charleston, South Carolina. So it was really an eye-opening exhibition for many people. Um, we also did a very well-attended exhibition on the Chinese Exclusion Act, Chinese American. We called it Inclusion Exclusion. So being very observant, I noticed that you spell New York in an unusual way. It's N-E-W-Y-O-R-K. So where did the dash come from and why do you still need that dash? Well, um, in 1804, when we were founded, any place name that consisted of an adjective plus a name, a noun, I should say, required a, a hyphen in between those two parts. So New Jersey had one. The New York and the New York Times had one. Oyster Bay uh, on Long Island had one. That's just the way the spelling was. By the 20th century, virtually all of those place names had eliminated the hyphen. And you know, we had endless discussions about whether to keep it or not to keep it. The interesting fact is that in 1945, a member of the New York City Council was riding on the subway and saw an advertisement for the New York Historical Society and for the first time noted that hyphen and um, stumped off to the city council and demanded that it be removed. New York will have no hyphens, they, that member of the city council said. And he compared the hyphen to a gremlin crawling around in the dark and said it needed to be surgically excised. And the city council did make an effort to require us to remove the hyphen from our name. but. Uh, Somehow they didn't manage to get their way. And we continued to have endless discussions about the hyphen. But, you know, at the end of the day, our softball team is called the hyphens. So um, maybe we've made something of it. Have you ever considered a name which does not imply that your society is about New York history? Do people ever think that New York is actually your focus? 
Yeah, so, you know, again, the New York part of New York Historical Society is an artifact of our founding in 1804. At the time, there was only one other institution that bore any resemblance to us, and that was what was called the Historical Society, which we know today as the Massachusetts Historical Society. So only in order to distinguish ourselves from the Massachusetts version of the Historical Society was New York imparted into our name. But actually, our mission in 1804 was to tell national history. So, you know, the New York part of it stuck. And indeed, many people do think that we are a historical society like others that talk about local history, which is not the case. And, uh, you know, the New York Times seems perfectly happy to be called the New York Times and no one seems to think that the New York Times publishes only local news, but that somehow does not seem to work in our case. And we did try about a decade ago uh, to you know, diminish that impression that we leave by adding museum and library. So you know, at least you know that we have a museum and a library and we're not sort of a closed society about New York. So is there an organization other than the Massachusetts Society, which is like the New York Historical Society? In other words, do the other um, 48 states have historical societies or really it's just New York and Massachusetts? There are historical societies everywhere. I mean, every tiny town in the United States has one, but we're really unique. I mean, there, there is not another place that's called a historical society that has a museum collection the size of ours or an exhibition program, anything like ours, not to mention a library as well and a massive educational operation. Let's talk about some physical assets that the society has. And why don't we start with your current building? When was your current building originally built and what did it cost? So our uh, building on Central Park West is our 11th home. As our collections grew, we moved and moved and moved again. And on the centennial of the New York Historical Society's establishment, 1904, some land was purchased on Central Park West. And for the cost of $421,150, our building was built in 1904, the inner part of our building. And uh, that was the beginning of our campus on Central Park West. Are you trying to build a new building? And if so, where will it be? So this um, 10,000 square foot piece of property immediately to the west of our headquarters on Central Park West has been waiting for us to build on since 1937. And um, we do actually now have a plan to build on that site. And who is the architect of the new building? So we, um, we called on Robert A.M. Stern. Bob Stern has been itching to do this project since I met him uh, 17 years ago when I started at New York Historical. He knows our collections. He's very sensitive to the Upper West Side's uh, penchant for not making any changes if, if they can be avoided at all costs. And he has designed, it's actually a gorgeous building, but it is totally seamless from the outside with our original building. And that, that in fact, is the, the story of the 1937 additions as well. So, you know, from the outside, everything will look like the same building, but the interiors are really just beautiful, sunlit, sweeping spaces that are much more conducive to 21st century museum 
and education aspirations than our current building. And what will be in the new building that you need? The main issue for us is that we need to bring back some of our library collection. I mean, you know, it's a definitional issue. You're not really a library if you don't have any of your collection on site, which is where we find ourselves right now. So um, one motivator for the new building is the need for uh, state-of-the-art compact storage for a collection like ours. So we actually will be building that underground in the new building. We also have been working very hard to help young people know American history and understand American history and um, grow up to be civically engaged Americans and vote in particular. And we um, created a new program at the request of the New York City Public Schools for sixth graders. And that program reaches back to antiquity, uh, helps them to understand the Athenian experiment. They all um, make their own togas and dress up in them. It's a lot of fun. And we have about 3,000 sixth graders right now, but there are 100,000 sixth graders in the New York City Public School. Our ambition is to have at least one third of them, which is somewhere around 30,000 sixth graders. This is a residency program. So they come to our institution for a week. It's a marvelous program. It's just wonderful. I mean, we have children who are saying, well, I never really knew what democracy meant, but now I understand it and I can explain it to other people. So they really learn a huge amount, but it, it's a program that requires them to actually be physically present. So we, we're exploding already with young people. We have about 200,000 students who learn history with us every year already. And in order to do what we want to do with what we call the Academy for American Democracy, we really need space. So the you know, second leg of the stool in the new building is the Academy for American Democracy. And the third leg is a venture um, that we uh, just embarked on uh, really a very short couple of years ago, short time ago. There is a museum without a space called the American LGBTQ Plus Museum with a will to tell the history of the American LGBTQ plus community. And so the, um, the new building that we're building will house that museum. It will be the first time ever in New York that the history, which is a, a real struggle for civil rights and um, really rights as an American citizen of that community will be told. How many artifacts does the society own and how many of these are on display at any one time? Well, we own millions of millions of objects, countless. <laughs> it's, uh, it's truly impossible to say. Um, our library has boxes and boxes, each of which might contain, I don't know, 150 letters or 200 letters. So it's really hard to quantify our collections. Um, and the museum collection is smaller than the library collection, but it alone has at least a million objects in it. And I would say the library perhaps has 10 million. On view at any one time, perhaps a thousand. I mean, between the library and, and the museum, we have uh, on our fourth floor, we have a hundred um, Tiffany lamps from our museum collection on display. And we have a lot of material culture on display as well in our permanent collection galleries. What are the most popular artifacts that are regularly on display at the New York Historical Society? Well, uh, we have George Washington's armchair that he sat in when he was inaugurated president. That's 
pretty cool. And that's on uh, more or less permanent display in our fourth floor galleries. We also now have on long-term loan, actually, the Bible that George Washington placed his hand on when he swore the oath of office. We have all of the original Audubon watercolors for John James Audubon's um, Birds of America prints, 435 of them. And while all 435 of them are not on permanent view, you can always see some of the Audubons. We have, you know, we have the... Uh, the head of Lincoln, um, the maquette that was done for the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, and that also is on permanent view. And uh, we have a very cool document in our collection, which is the authorization for the purchase of Louisiana with a little red wine stain in the corner signed by Bonaparte. And we tried to place that on view as, as often as is practical given its fragility. Are people giving you new, or should I say old, artifacts to display? And can you take everything that people want to give you? And if you can't, how do you politely say, well, this just isn't right for us? Yeah, well, we try to be polite. People want to give us things all the time. And sometimes we really want what they want to give us. And that's great. So um, a few years ago, I got a call from Norman Perlstein, who was then at Time Inc., and uh, Time Inc. had, you know, been sold. It's now been sold and sold again. But at the time, Time Inc. was leaving its headquarters uh, where its archives were. Some, mo many of its archives were stored and they really didn't want to take them along and they didn't want to have the trouble, have to go to the trouble of keeping them. So they were offered to us. Uh, you know, I used to say that it was the 20th century in a box, but it's really the 20th century and maybe 10,000 boxes. It's a massive, massive collection. And as, um, as the company got sold and resold, we started with a massive number of publications going back to, you know, really going back to Henry Luce and his original doodlings uh, when he started the company. But over time, you know, other magazines uh, that were in the part of the company were given to us as well. And some other really cool things like... Um, the uh, Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, inscribed to Edmund Burke, which uh, Henry Luce had, was given to us as well, and a Princess Diana dress that someone won in an auction. So an organization that I'm involved with recently had an event at the New York Historical Society's headquarters, or your main offices, and the most popular thing seemed to be the replica of the Oval Office. Uh, when did that start? And is that popular in other groups as well, or just my group that liked it? Everybody loves it. We opened our Oval Office perhaps one week before we had to shut down because of COVID, but um, we've reopened it. It is hugely popular. People love to have the opportunity to sit behind the Resolute desk and get their picture taken. And it's an exact replica, it happens to be Ronald Reagan's Oval Office for a variety of reasons with a jar of jelly beans on the desk. But um, you can actually listen to three conversations that actually took place in the Oval Office. You know, one of them, Nixon learning about the publication of the Pentagon Papers. Another one, um, the Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, it's really, it's really a pretty, pretty incredible experience. And so for children who are interested in history, what do you really have at the New York Historical Society? Well, we have some terrific things. Um, first of all, we have a program called Little New Yorkers, which operates in our Domena Children's History Museum on Tuesday and Friday afternoons. And 
these um, children ages two to four come and they learn history through stories and they come with their caregivers, many of whom you know, were not born in this country. So it's a great opportunity for the caregivers to learn American history as well. But we have a range of programs for children and we do have a children's history museum. Most recently, we have a wonderful um, online, totally online program that you know about called Opening the Oval. And it is an animated comic book series that, that you know, really depends on conversations you've had, David, with historians like Michael Deschloss and filmmakers like Ken Burns. But they all have avatars and they, you know, guide the children. And this is for middle school through high school children, although Adults have been watching and tell me they're, you know, getting more, learning more than they ever learned in their history classes. But um, it is, uh, you know, it's a novel approach, but I have learned that children these days, uh, especially inner city children, really, really resonate somehow with comic book um, animations, much more so than, than they do with other kinds of learning materials. Do you have a big online and social media program? Yes. You know, fortunately, our education department is staffed mainly by younger people, and they were very adept at evolving our education programs onto an online platform and ditto for our Domena Children's History Museum. So we actually now have a massive, massive online presence. We also have started live streaming all of our public programs in our auditorium. Other than the new building, what are some of the other plans you have for the society in the next year or so? Well, you touched on it before. We really are very focused on engaging uh, younger audiences and younger people in learning about American history. And um, we found that whenever we did a program that touched on science, we would sell out and the audience would be you know, more in the 25 to 45 range than in our typical 45 to 95 range. So we're going to experiment beginning in April with something we call the Climate Cafe. And the Climate Cafe will take place in our restaurant on a day when our restaurant is otherwise closed in the evening. And we will have speakers who will speak about issues relating to water, for example, but in a historical context. You know, I've been talking to a lot of younger people about their interest in joining us, and there seems to be a huge amount of interest. And, you know, that is a, a project that I hope will grow and, and flourish and will attract a lot of younger people. So that's really something in the immediate future for us. So let's talk about your own background for a moment. Um, where were you born and raised? I was born in New York City. My, um, my family actually came on both sides, my mother's side and my father's side, came to New York in, uh, in the 1880s and stayed here. In part, I was raised in New York City. My father was one of the founding doctors of North Shore Hospital in Manhasset, Long Island. So eventually my family moved out there to be closer to where his work was. Where did you go to high school and college and what were your interests then? Was it history or was it something else? Um, I went to high school in Great Neck, New York, and that's that's where I graduated. Um, I was very interested in biology. I don't think I was particularly interested in history at all, and I was uh, very interested in languages. In high school, I studied French, Spanish, and Russian. Um, I just was always eager to learn a new language. 
um, I went went to college. I went to University of Pennsylvania, and I, you know, we had sort of this smorgasbord that you could choose from to meet your requirements. And my mother um, looked over the smorgasbord and she said, "Take a course in medieval history because." You know, it's something you'll never do again. You really have to do this. You'll be totally fascinated. And I took an amazing course in medieval history and I was hooked. I ended up majoring in college in romance, language, and literatures, but I wrote my senior honors thesis on medieval Spain. Where did you get your graduate degrees and what did you intend to do with those graduate degrees? Well, I got my first graduate degree at Cambridge University in England. I, um, I I went to England. I got a job in a bookstore, which I enjoyed, but I realized I was in Cambridge and I realized that everyone else was a student. So I decided I should be one too. And, um, you know, I thought I'll do something a little bit off the beaten track. Um, in those days, Noam Chomsky was making a lot of news, not only for his political views, but for his views of the origins of language. And... I'd always really loved languages. So I did um, my first graduate degree in theoretical generative linguistics, which was highly mathematical, really out of my wheelhouse. But I learned a lot and I really, really enjoyed it. And then I spent two very cold, damp years at Cambridge. So I decided to go to Stanford and I did um, I did a double PhD in one part of it was in the uh, Department of Spanish and Portuguese and the other was what Stanford had at the time, which it no longer has, which is really great books of the Western world. It was called Humanities. So after you got your two PhDs, what did you do? Well, I looked for a job. I mean, I went on the job market at a really terrible time. And um, I, you know, I wrote my thesis on uh, some chronicles that really characterized a civil war in Spain that involved England and France as well, and um, ended up installing the first illegitimate uh, ruler on the throne, on any throne in Europe. It was, you know, kind of fun, a little bit salacious, and uh, it was very obscure, and no one was hiring any medievalist when I went on the job market, except for Fordham University, Catholic University. The Middle Ages was a great time for Catholics, and um, and so I, I got a job as an assistant professor. And I stayed there for a while, and then I um, got a job at UCLA, and I taught there. And then I was offered a job as department chair at University of Minnesota, so I moved there. And uh, after that, uh, while I was at Minnesota, I um, was uh, recruited as a token into the central administration. You know, it was a lot of tall white men, and um, I was asked to be vice provost for art sciences and engineering. You know, I'd love doing my research, but by that time I'd written three books and lots of articles. And I found that I really, really enjoyed helping other people do their work. And I'd never met an engineer before. So I really, really liked that as well. So uh, so then I decided I want to be an administrator and I was recruited to be become university provost for the system at the City University of New York. And uh, it was very cold in Minnesota, so I was happy to come back east. So how many years were you in that position? I was in that position for seven years. And while I was there, I was approached by Dick Gilder, who had this American history document collection and was really keen to promote American history in public high schools. And 
So he wanted to create a high school on one of the CUNY campuses, Lehman College, which is in the Bronx. And you know, CUNY is a bureaucracy, the public schools are an even worse bureaucracy, and he just couldn't get anywhere. But you know, when you're inside a bureaucracy, and I was basically the number two person in the system, it's really very easy to get things done. So we were able to create that school. It is now one of the top 25 public high schools in the entire country. And it's a testing school. First time there was a, another testing school in New York. You know, everybody knows about Stuyvesant Bronx Science in 40 years. So it's a great school and it's uh, called the Academy for American History. And it avails itself of some great history faculty at Lehman College. So, um, you know, that was part of my seven years at CUNY. And that's how I uh, came to the New York Historical Society because Dick Gilder wanted a place for his collection. He deposited New York Historical Society. And when the institution looked for new leadership, you know, basically I was ready for a new job. What is the greatest pleasure you have had from this job over the past 17 years? Well, um, as I said, I, you know, I trained as a medievalist. I, I spent um, much of my career thinking about the 8th through the, the 15th centuries. I was kind of very arrogant about American history. I always thought, you know, kind of 200 years or so and uh, one language. You know, I've really had to, had to bone up on American history, and I do a huge amount of reading. I mean, I've really learned to, to value the founding generation. And I mean, that is, has just been such a pleasure to me to really understand the risks that were taken. I mean, I, you know, certainly recognize, as everyone else does today, that, you know, the initial founding of our nation did not embrace everyone in this great experiment in democracy, but it, it planted the seeds. And, you know, without that founding generation, we would have had no blueprint for going forward as we did. And this has been, you know, this has been an absolute joy to me to really appreciate the nation, you know, in which I was born, which I live, and which has made so much progress over time um, in terms of extending the warm embrace of democracy to, to everyone. So any plans to do anything else professionally in the foreseeable future? Well, I've written a novel. So for those who want to know what your novel is about, can you give <laughs> us a little bit of a, a tease? Um, it's about New York in the 90s. In, New York in the 90s was, um, was sort of on the cusp of becoming safe, but it still was in the throes of, you know, the horrible crack cocaine uh, epidemic of, of the 80s that had really, you know, in, in many, many ways spoiled the city, made it a dangerous place. It, it's very upbeat, though, not, notwithstanding that. You have a title yet? It's called Best Interests. Okay. Finally, which, which figure in history, American or global history, would you most like to have dinner with? And what might you ask that person if you could ask one question? Hmm. Um, well, I think I would say Emma Lazarus. And, you know, I say that because uh, we've, we've been through such a traumatic period with all of the, you know, really virulent anti-immigrant rhetoric that, that we lived through you know, really over, over the past uh, several years. And um, I guess I'd like to, you know, just like to talk to her about the, the beautiful words that she wrote that were so welcoming uh, that are on the Statue of Liberty. She didn't live to see it on the Statue of Liberty. It obviously happened after she died, but it was an incredible poem on the new Colossus. 
and um, it's inspired immigrants for generations now. Right, and that's that's really the message that uh, it's it's wonderful that we had those words. It's wonderful that immigrants have seen them, and uh, it's wonderful that we continue to see them, and we should live up to them. So we've been in conversation with Louise Mirror, who is the president and CEO of the New York Historical Society. Louise, thank you very much for an interesting conversation. Thank you. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.